Hi and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. This is uh, a series of short stories about my career in the UK Police Force. This is episode 16. So today we're going to talk about uh, a subject that would be uh, probably common to most people. You know, you'll be aware of this one. This is something you see quite a lot in the press. Uh, missing persons. Now, obviously, it, it covers a wide, wide range of people from, you know, the sort of uh, teenager that's had an argument with mum and dad and decides they're going to sort of storm out in a huff and slam the door behind them. Occasionally, you know, after a couple of hours of not coming back, they might be reported as missing persons. That's probably the lower end of the scale. Um, although, in fairness, you know, that, that could, in the worst case scenario, end up as, you know, a suicide or similar you know it's probably unlikely but it could do and then ranging right up to the sort of high risk missing people which might be you know your elderly maybe with sort of medical ailments that haven't been seen uh, for a few days maybe you know hours weeks whatever um, or you know probably the very worst one which is uh, missing children um, which is particularly difficult to deal with for everyone and that's what we're going to talk about today so at this point, I was on a, a day shift. I think it was a 10 to 6 or something like that. So due to finish at 6 p.m. And I was working with a new probationer. I was on the tutor unit, and I think we talked about this before. So I was responsible for bringing along the new guys and girls, sort of training them up. Although in fairness, I didn't have loads of service myself at this point. Um, we used to get, I think we had them for... I think it was 10 weeks and during that period we used to swap them with another uh, sort of tutor so we basically had five weeks with each of them and them having two tutors worked quite well because it was a chance for you know to see different styles of policing and it may well be that I picked something up you know a colleague hadn't or vice versa um, ultimately we were looking to ensure that these people were up to standard and that they were you know good enough to be cops and for me it always came down to the fact was I happy for this person to work with me or to work with, you know, colleagues and friends of mine? If they put my name to themselves, I, you know, Dave looked after me, Dave tutored me. I didn't want, you know, friends of mine kind of rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, you know, I wanted them to be fairly reassured that, you know, if I tutored them, they were of a reasonable standard, you know, because unfortunately it did fall to us sometimes to get rid of these people, you know, if they weren't up to standard, which is quite difficult. And uh, one of the things I used to keep was I jokingly called it the Blue Book of Doom, but it was just a small exercise book. And each time we dealt with something uh, with the, the tutee, um, we would or I would just make a note of what it was and kind of how they performed and just any notes, you know, about, you know, did well on this, maybe needs some work on that, you know, blah, blah, whatever it is. But that was kept kind of in my office on the desk and it was open for them all to see. There was no surprise in there. And after each incident, we would talk through what had happened and how it had gone and what had worked well and what hadn't. So I'd like to think, you know, at no point was anyone kind of surprised if they were called out on something. It did have a bit of an ulterior motive, which we had to bring into play twice as well. And that was, unfortunately, if they weren't up to the standard, to start the process of potentially getting rid of them out of the job, we would need evidence. You know, much like a criminal case, you need to make your case as to why you don't think this person is up to the standard. So the Blue Book also, you know, gave me some notes so that when I came to write that horrible report, as I did a couple of times, um, you know, you had sort of all the evidence you needed right there in front of you. 
so that was that so i was working with one of these young lads um on the day and unfortunately he was one of the ones that ultimately ended up leaving although of his own accord um i mean he there's a question of kind of jump before you get pushed but um you know there we go uh so yeah working on a day shift quite late in the day it was about four o'clock in the afternoon or something and we'd actually kind of missed our our lunch uh, which happens a lot in the police you know in fact some people will tell you you know they're surprised they ever get a refs break as we talked about a refreshment break um regularly miss your refs that's just how it is and also you can get turned out of refs just as easy you know there's an urgent call coming and you're literally taking one bite of a sandwich that's you out the door to the call you know that's just the nature of the beast so on this particular day we got a call to a missing person well it was missing persons uh, plural there was two of them and it was two young girls that were 10 years old um now initially of course you it's a bit concerning but a lot of these uh you know until you get there and know any details they can be really straightforward it can be simply you know yes they're a bit young for it but they've walked out and gone to their neighbors where their friend is you know and they're having a play date next door with their friend and mum's panicked and sort of phoned us and obviously we want them to phone us because we need to establish that's the case and as i think has been talked about on a lot of the sort of shows tv shows podcasts etc that initial period of time is really, really important to a missing person because that's the best opportunity we've got of getting them back quickly. Obviously, as it um, progresses through hours, days, weeks, etc., it becomes a lot harder. And also, obviously, the concern grows greatly, you know, as to what's happened to them. Um, so we go along to this address and I speak to the parents. And in fact, these two girls uh, walk to school together. And they live very near to each other. And they'd left in the morning, as usual, at half eight or so. Um, you know, and it took them, I think, 15 minutes or something to walk to their school. Well, they'd never arrived at school. And that was obviously unusual. Um, but more importantly, the school had never told the parents until literally now. Because you might think, well, why are they just reporting at kind of four o'clock in the afternoon if the kids went missing at half eight? But the reality is that particular day, it was unfortunate. Um, as these things quite often work out, there was a number of missing children that day. I think there was maybe like a sickness bug going around or whatever. So, um, you know, there might have been like six or eight children not turned up that day without sort of good reason as such. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, say it was just one of those classics where a few things add up. And uh, for one reason or another, they hadn't let the parents know till quite late on. So you can imagine that now left us. Um, a good few hours kind of behind the, the game which is as i say never good in, in missing persons um so we took the details initially it's just a, a very basic form and it just captures all the details you'd expect you know name date of birth description we always try and get a photo if we can and, and a recent photo as well um i've quite often had people try to give me oh here's a photo of so and so and you look at them and you go sorry did you say this person was 70 you know and they're like yeah yeah you go this is a 20 year old you know um, oh, that's the only photo I've got of them. You know, well, it's probably not a lot of use to us, but uh, invariably nowadays with smartphones and etc., you know, there is normally uh, relatively recent photos of these people. So we always take those. The one of the other things we always do is we always search the house because, again, I've been to quite a few calls as we all have, um, where they say, you know, little Johnny's gone missing, haven't seen him, I'm really worried, don't know where he is, and say, right, just have a quick look around the house. No, I've looked around the house. I've looked around all the hiding places. Um, you go, okay, but I really need to satisfy myself they're not here. It's not, I don't trust you, but can I just have a quick look? And most parents, you know, will be like, sure, no problems. The other good thing to do at this point is to speak to um, 
if they've got any siblings, any brothers or sisters, I always like to speak to them and say, how's it going? All right. Oh, we're looking for your brother, you know. So when you play hide and seek, where do you hide? You know, where's his favorite hiding place? Twice I've had them take me direct to, you know, under the bed, behind the suitcase, in the cupboard or wherever it was and say, this is his favorite spot. Oh, and in fact, that's where he is, you know. So um, that can work quite well in terms of figuring out where they are. Um, and it's the very first question you're going to be asked as well uh, by any sort of senior rank. You know, have you searched the house? Because if you haven't, you'll be going back to search it. Because we just can't afford to start pouring resources, you know, uh, lots and lots of cops and dogs and potentially helicopters and search teams and all sorts of things into it if they're hiding under the bed. You know, a simple game of hide and seek. So on this occasion, I'd done just that and uh, we'd had a look around the house. We were fairly happy. And of course, very quickly as well, we're going to go and knock on neighbours' doors uh, just to establish because they might have said, oh, yeah, I think they said that they, uh, you know, were going off to do this and that or whatever. Um, so, you know, you, you do those very basic inquiries early on. So you take your report, you get all your details, you've got your photo. On this occasion, we headed back to the Nick and I spoke to my sergeant um, because, again, a sergeant's going to very quickly be involved in any sort of um, decision-making progress or process, rather, in, in relation to missing people. So I gave him the details, and at the end of it, um, it didn't seem your normal one, certainly. You know, these were two 10-year-old girls. They'd never been missing before. There was no real family problems. You know, sometimes it's very obvious there's a big family problem or there's just been a nasty divorce or, you know, in some cases there may be child abuse going on, all sorts, but none of that was the case um, with this job. Um, so it really seemed out of character. But rather unfairly, my sergeant said to me, well, I'll kind of leave it up to you. You know, if you want to put the balloon up and we sort of escalate this and take it all the way, then that's fine. Or, or maybe we wait a bit longer and just see if they turn up because actually, you know, they're at a neighbour's house. Um, it's a little bit unfair because that's very clearly at least a sergeant's decision. And then, you know, going up for their inspector or whoever, you know, it's not really a PC's decision. But it was very clear in my mind that we 100% needed to escalate it. So I told him that. And from there, then inspectors become notified and then slowly the sort of wheels go into motion. So the, the initial reports were taken. They were logged. People were told they got circulated, you know, amongst police as uh, their description. Obviously, we headed to the school. We tried to speak to some of their friends or we did speak to some of their friends to say, you know, to see had they mentioned you know that they're planning anything because sometimes you know they'll tell their best pal at school actually tomorrow we're bunking off school you know and me and so and so are going to go and down the beach or into the park or whatever it was and that did muddy the waters a little bit because one of the kids said that uh, one of these two girls had spoken about i think it was i think it was going to london but it was going to buy a present or go shopping or something or there was there was definitely something that you know could have led to why they'd gone missing in the first place. So that that did alter it a little bit, but again, you couldn't put too much on it. You know, these are two 10-year-old girls. So anyway, the inquiries continue, and then I was due to go off shift, and um, very quickly, you know, it was passed to the next team that was coming on, and they pick up the inquiries. Obviously, you've detailed what inquiries you've done, um, and then uh, you had a chat with them invariably. There's a handover. They pick it up, and you go off duty. But of course, you do wonder when you're at home, I'm hoping they found those girls now. And so it carries on. So, And invariably, you're coming to work the next time. They go, yeah, we found them. They were down the beach. They were at their friend's house. They'd spent too long in the park or whatever it was. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case on this day. 
So came back on shift the next day to find that both the girls were still missing. Um, and by now, obviously, as we would say in the police, this thing had grown legs. You know, it was starting to really develop because now you've had two 10-year-old girls missing overnight, which is a massive deal. So unless they're, you know, with, uh, you know, a friend that they've stayed overnight with or a relative and we pretty much ruled all of those out, you know, there's a real concern now. Ten-year-old girls don't just wander the streets at night and not get recognised, you know, or noticed by a member of the public. Um, so it had got ramped up, and what had started to happen was media appeals had gone out. Now, nowadays, again, that's a lot easier with your, you know, kind of Facebooks and Twitters and Instagram and all the rest of it. You know, these things go out a lot quicker online um, to get out there. But in those days, you were pretty much down to the radio and, uh, you know, newspapers, which obviously don't necessarily come out um, immediately. The, the radio actually was probably the quickest one, so the description went out on there. Now, obviously you have to do that, and you have to put out those those details, but the risk is um, that you start to get a lot of mainly well-meaning people ringing up saying, I think I've seen them, you know, and you have to. It swallows up a lot of resources sending off uh, cops and people to sort of check um, you know these various uh, sightings out and in fact in this occasion um, we had several sightings in the Met you know in London which was sort of 70 miles away seemed unlikely but you couldn't rule it out you know so those had to be followed up by uh, Met cops you know to see if there's anything in it and it appeared there wasn't you know so we had no confirmed sightings and now 24 hours gone which is never good slowly this thing as I say gets bigger and bigger kind of higher ranks get brought in more specialists um, and throughout the day there was various inquiries going on the one big issue is we didn't really have a starting point but I suppose we did when they left home to leave you know for school in the morning it, it was a relatively short dif distance I think maybe something like half a mile yeah about half a mile I think it was um, so you're assuming they've gone missing between you know leaving home and the school somewhere in between there presuming that they haven't gone off the beach or wherever that's chance are where they've gone from so obviously it was loads of house to house but unfortunately that covered a lot of addresses we didn't have the advantage of you know seeing if people had their own cctv or ring doorbells or whatever because they just didn't exist you know um so lots of inquiries were carried out these are all very time consuming but more and more cops were being poured into this as this thing built and it ended up with me going off shift again um, still uh, without any success, unfortunately. Um, now, I think I went on to rest days then, so I ended up with a couple of days off. Um, but I was uh, quite surprised and sort of saddened to see that the following day, so this would have been potentially a good two days, maybe three days, um, there was still no sign of them. And now this was national news. This was on the national news channels, your BBCs and Sky News, etc. Um, so... By now as well, they'd brought in a very senior detective, a detective superintendent who had a really good uh, background in this stuff, a lot of knowledge. Um, had dealt with these things before with you know really high success rate. He was very well thought of. So um, it was good, but those of us in the know were also thinking, as he probably was, you know, it, this really doesn't look good. You know, this has gone from somebody we're going to find at the neighbours playing with their children to you know, is this something more sinister? Um, and it had been ramped up to such a degree that now um, there'd been a pulser brought in, so that's a police search advisor. That's somebody who's uh, very highly trained, does quite a long course in coordinating search responses. So they are the ones that will dish out taskings to cops that says, 
and they're very specific. It will say you are looking for this and you are to look for it in this area and there'll be a map because obviously somebody somewhere has to equally coordinate where these people have searched because obviously the last thing you want to do is double up on searching. But even worse, what you don't want to do is two teams pass very close together but actually there's a gap that gets missed altogether. That's even worse, as you can imagine. Really difficult thing to uh, sort of coordinate, uh, particularly then because you didn't have the help of, you know, laptops or GPS and things like that. It just wasn't about. Um, so by this point, you've got uh, 300 cops involved. They've been brought in from all over the force and other forces. There was also the military involved. There was 50 Gurkhas, which is, a, again, a very well-respected regiment within the British Army. They'd been brought in, and they were searching all the sort of wide open spaces in the area that we had there was a few sort of run down um, old industrial states you know with ruins of buildings on and things lots of kids used to go there and play because there was rubble and you know all sorts of hidey holes and probably good fun for kids you know but there was a fear that they'd gone onto there and got trapped or something or maybe there was an old cellar or something they'd fallen into or a well or all sorts so you had these are big areas you know difficult to search again we didn't have drones you know we did have dogs police dogs were used as I say, so you've got the army and um, a lot of cops now, 300 or so. And they're the ones that are doing this sort of line searches you see, maybe with the sticks, you know, where they're uh, sweeping through big areas, trying to rule things out. So it really had got increasingly bigger. And so it went on. And um, this, this continued. Um, I think I came back on duty. So now this was probably four days later. Um, and uh, yeah, re really not looking good. And I think even the, the senior detective was on the press kind of saying, you know, we have real concerns. And most people reading between the lines sort of figured out that that wasn't good. So one of the things you would do as well in an inquiry like this, particularly obviously with children, um, unfortunately, in every town, probably in every country, there are a number of paedophiles, some that you know about and some you don't. Now, in the UK, they're on a register, so we know who those are. But, of course, there could be ones that haven't been caught that are totally unknown to us. So, without a doubt, detectives start visiting the known paedophiles because we want to, obviously, establish their movements, where have they been, etc. Now, in the town I was working in, it was quite a high proportion, or, or what you think maybe. There was 50-odd uh, registered paedophiles in this relatively small town, and that might shock you, but I'm afraid to say that's probably not unusual. You know, if you live in a town of um, 15 or 20,000 people, that's probably the sort of registered sex offenders you've got living amongst you. So they were definitely visited. Um, and as that was kind of drew a blank and they were ruled out, so the um, investigation got bigger and wider and started moving out to the neighbouring towns because obviously... It's not impossible they've been picked up um, and you know moved to another location by vehicle so that's what started to happen and on day four um, I think it was a detective sergeant but a detective definitely was busy visiting uh, the known paedophiles in his area uh, and he also needed to speak to a particular one who lived above a shopping centre had a flat above a shopping centre about some other allegations um, so he went to this address um, and obviously spoke to him about these two girls as well as the other thing. And while he was speaking to him before he got into the flat, he heard a couple of sort of faint cries from within the flat. And amazingly, both of these two girls sort of appeared and were within the flat. Um, so it was fantastic. Well, initially it was because they weren't dead, which was obviously the concern. Um, both girls were obviously got hold of, made sure physically they were okay. 
and you know were returned to parents and that was fantastic um and what had actually happened it turned out in the sort of day going forward while they were debriefed i guess very sensitively with sort of specialist officers um, they had been walking to school as we expected uh, and there was no intention to you know bunk off or go to the shops or go to a trip or buy anything shopping anything like that um they had literally been uh, this guy had pulled up beside them as i say he was a registered sex offender um he pulled up alongside them in a car and he'd opened his boot and um the both girls sort of stopped and, and stood and looked he didn't say a lot um and he i think he kind of motioned into the boot one of them walked over to sort of see what he was pointing to and that was enough for him to basically grab them and uh, and sort of throw her in the back of the car well the other one just stood there kind of transfixed um, and also not wanting to leave her friends i mean her friend you know i should imagine she was well terrified i'm sure at that time um, and just froze basically which unfortunately made it all the easier for for him so she was also picked up and basically put into the boot of this car and driven off um and they screamed they screamed a lot and it was kind of half eight quarter to nine in the morning you know in a relatively built up residential town so it's not like they were in the sort of rural woods or anything you know i'm really surprised that no one heard those screams but unfortunately in urban environments you know people are used to noises people think oh somebody's got a telly on too loud or foxes is a classic when foxes scream at night i don't know if you've ever heard them it literally sounds like someone's being murdered it's the most horrendous noise and if you live in a place that's got a lot of foxes you can quite often sort of write off various noises to foxes whether that's the case or not so unfortunately yeah no one realized they'd gone they're into the boot of the car and they were away you know to this neighboring town um and then to get them from the car into the flat he took them out one at a time but he zipped them into large sports bags uh one at a time because bear in mind these were you know 10 year old girls so physically they were pretty small these large sort of uh wheelie you know sports bags with a handle uh he zipped them in one at a time and took them into the flat so they weren't seen and basically threatened them, you know, that they made a noise, um, and that was the end of them. Um, you know, he's a horrible, horrible guy. And um, they were taken into the flat, and that's where they were held for four days. Um, and uh, they weren't killed, which is something, but unfortunately they were repeatedly sexually assaulted over, the, over that period of four days, and they suffered terribly. Um, really, really nasty job. Um, I think it almost broke them mentally, you know, going forward in the in the years ahead. I've certainly read some stuff uh, that they've said, and uh, I mean, it just sounds terrible. Um, but you know, hopefully they will recover one day. Um, like I say, for us, a sort of good result, but also you know the damage mentally that's been done to them. So yeah, not a not a good story, I'm afraid. But it just shows, you know, we go to, and I certainly been to, you know, hundreds of missing people, and it's really easy to just write them off as, oh, this will be nothing. This will be, you know, they've done this and they've done that. Let's not worry about it too much. But I'm telling you, the police have caught a cold over this a lot of times. So now missing people are treated really, really seriously. You know, um, there's no more kind of dismissing things and not bothering to check and all the rest of it. It's really taken seriously because, you know, we know the potential. Um, so so that was jo that job uh quite a depressing one i'm afraid again uh, that's the realities of police work hopefully you found it interesting and um, i'll speak to you again on the next one take it easy cheers bye